All right, welcome back to the Community Warehouse. This is Imran Nalawala, and I am joined by my co-host, Habib Qadri. Habib, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. How you been? I've been good. It's been it's been quite some time again. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we're back. School, school's beginning, so we need to get, get this back on the road. And I know we have a, a friend of yours on today, very interesting individual uh, who you highly recommended that we bring on the show. And his name, just for the audience, is Dr. Adam Parrott-Sheffer. He's a former award-winning special education teacher, principal, and district administrator for early childhood and multilingual learners. He has worked in neighborhood, charter, and independent schools for almost two decades. He has served as a special assistant to the chancellor of the New York City Department of Education. Currently, he works with rural, urban, and suburban school and system leaders globally to improve learning through data, design leadership pathways, with a special attention to entry and successfully execute strategy. He is also a strategy advisor to Harvard's DataWise project and the co-chair of the DataWise in Action Institute. However, his favorite job is in education is actually serving as a volunteer at the neighborhood school where his children attend. I know I read that, Habib, but anything that you can uh, personally say about uh, Dr. Adam before we bring him on? Oh, yeah, it's, this is going to be exciting because Adam is an individual I met at uh, Harvard School of Education on their uh, advice. I think he was also on the advisory board, but, but we I met him at one of our PCC, some of the summer programs that they do, we were both facilitators at. So, uh, uh, and then the, the, the uniqueness was that we were having a conversation. I was like in Chicago, he was a principal of a school, the school I went to elementary, you know, from preschool all the way to eighth grade. So it was like, oh, wait a minute. And, and I still, uh, my parents still live in that same, uh, you know, in that neighborhood, like a block away. So I was like, hey, you need to hook me up so I can meet the principal of that school because it's been about <laughs> 20, oh, 30 years since I've walked inside that building. Wow. So. Well, I, I know he's got an amazing new book and we'll, we'll discuss that with him, Entry Planning for Equity Focused Leaders, Empowering Schools and Communities. So without further ado, we bring out Dr. Adam. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure, Dr. Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. Awesome, Good first awesome. week of school here in Chicago. That's right. Yeah, second week for us. Not not to say that we're any better, but just a <laughs> second week for us. <laughs> you, 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 in Texas, everyone does everything different over there, in Texas, right? So you guys are one of a kind. One country by bigger, their own. better, earlier. I mean, you know, I'm just I'm just saying. So Habib, I know you had a really interesting point that you were mentioning off screen about this about this new book. So do you want to do you want to maybe go ahead and ask your question that you had? No, I mean, I mean, just for us to get an uh, idea, I mean, especially this topic of equity and especially equity leadership, you know, where everything, the school starts with the the, the person on, on the top, right? And then how you kind of, you know, uh, kind of get whatever that focus and vision that uh, that's, the administrator has. But I wanted to kind of ask Adam, like, you know, what, you know, you have vast amount of experience, but what kind of got you to a point that you felt like, hey, you needed to write this book? For, uh, for fellow educators and leaders throughout the United States and abroad. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that has been a through line in my career and a lot of people I talk to is like, beginning a job is tough, right? Like, well, I remember being that first year teacher, right? And you get handed the keys in a classroom full of somebody else's stuff and said to jump into it. Um, as a principal back in the day, it was, you know, handed the keys, maybe got an hour with the person who was there before, they gave you some information. Um, and we've moved a little bit since there in the 20 years that I've been working, but like you still talk to people and, and, you know, there's some great entry processes now around that are trying to help people think about like, how do we start a little bit better? But what I have found and when I talk to people is that, you know, it's really great. They're talking more about listening. They're talking more about trying to have learning more about the process, 
but so much of these structures that we're putting in place to mentor people are actually more helping and oftentimes can help people replicate the system that's in place as opposed to really think about what is it that needs to be true within a community? How do we actually recenter where power is within the community? Um, and so for me, you know, was the, I was starting to have these conversations and um, you know, the two colleagues that I wrote the book with both, you know, were in Chicago Public Schools starting about the same time as me. Um, and, you know, we, we reconnected again, kind of like uh, me, and, me and Habib here uh, at Harvard and we're, you know, working together. I was getting my doctorate and, you know, this, this opportunity to really dig into like what's actually going on when people start work. How could we do this differently? So one, they stay in the job because we know people are leaving these roles really quickly. Um, and then how can they do it differently? Um, so that not only do they not burn out, but maybe we actually change what happens in schools and makes them work for all kids. So for me, that was really the heart of it is like having these deep experience of knowing starting is tough and <laughs> not knowing exactly what to do. And even when I did all the right things, there was still something missing, right? Like voices were being left behind. Uh, positions weren't fully being being heard. So that's that's kind of where we both started. We were sharing these stories and we all had similar ones. We're like, there's something here. There's, there's, a, there's a story to be tell. There's supports that uh, we can put in place for leaders. So the book has to do with entry planning for leaders, right? And so what is it about this initial phase, the initial few days, few weeks, or month when a leader takes over or a leader uh, transitions into a, a new workplace? Why is that initial phase so important? Yeah, so it's it's kind of like all these things are being figured out at, a, at like what would be the worst possible time, right? Like you have the least amount of information. You don't know if everybody's being a straight shooter with you, if they're giving you the right information, how much is coming from their perspective. They're sizing you up, like, do we trust you? Are you competent? Are you gonna be nice to me? Do you like me? What's gonna to happen to my job? So there's all this angst and wondering and uncertainty and people are expecting you to show up and lead. Hmm. And so when you're least competent, the most is being expected of you in those first, you know, what some people, you know, 90 days is popular, but you know, we think of it like it's a continuum, right? There's not really a honeymoon, particularly these days for leaders, but this idea that you're expected to deliver you're expected to meet people's needs and address people's problems and prove that things are different and better. And you're trying to hit the ground learning, right? You're trying to figure out what's actually going on in this place and uh, do right and, and not and communicate who you are as a leader. One more question, Habib, if you don't mind. Yeah, please go ahead. So, you know, you brought up a good point. You mentioned that as you're as a new leader is in a new environment and then you're dealing with individuals, some who may not trust you, some who may want to find out more about what you're about leaders are human beings right they have their own flaws so you mentioned in in the i believe you refer to it as the eight dimensions mm -hmm. you talk about inwardness uh, reflection transparency but isn't it difficult to be transparent to be very honest especially in the beginning when you're not sure how others are taking you yeah i think it's scary right like that's one of those pieces of leadership that you know willing to put yourself out there and be vulnerable before everybody else, right? So when I think about those those initial steps, when you talk about that reflection, uh, there, are, it really for you know to the leaders that we talked to, the the, the ones that we interviewed, and in, in our own experience, there are kind of two pieces that were really important to that, right? The first is really knowing who you are, right? Like if you're going to have, put yourself out there, you got to be clear about what your values are. You've got to be clear about. Um, what your hopes and dreams are for the role. And you got to be clear about kind of what you're bringing to the mix, right? Like what are your strengths? What are the places where you might have blind spots? Um, how can you be really clear about those pieces and start telling those stories? 
I find when it's about, you know, what's that story? And, and when the purpose is to let people know a little bit about you, but then also really to learn about them, it reduces the, the some of that, what you're saying, that kind of that fear, that ability to make a mistake, right? Because what you're really trying to do is hear their story, hear what, hear what their hopes and fears are. What, what do they believe about this organization? Where have they been harmed by it? Where have they, you know, felt that they were really able to contribute and, you know, what brings them energy and puts them on fire in their work? And so I think when, when it's, it's about that and you're showing, you know, there's nothing I'm going to ask you to do that I'm not gonna do first. I'm gonna make the first mistakes. I'm gonna make the first three, so you don't have to worry about it. Already taken care of, no one's gonna laugh at you. I did it, we can all make mistakes here and learn. That's how you start to shift that culture. So yes, it's scary and that's that's the work of a leader. I mean, I think it's, it's nice the way that you're kind of first bringing out how important that they need to know who you are and the idea of you know, having that values and your strengths and kind of sharing your thoughts and visions. Uh, but at the same time, make, being a listener and trying to be like, hey, well, tell me more about you. Uh, and, and that's ended up the school. But I know one of your articles, you also wrote about how important it's to really get to know the community. Like, you know, like, you know, it's one is uh, if you want to be that equity leader, how important it's not just uh, that two second. Hey, hi, young man. Nice to meet you. High five. But kind of uh, visiting and kind of uh, being more immersed in the neighborhood that you are uh, going to be the leader at. So can you give us a little bit more about that, Adam? Yeah, and I think and I think that sometimes it shows that perspective of like being a new leader when you're from the outside. But like I think it really matters true when you think you know a place, right? And you're from there, right? There's other perspectives. There's other people who live there, and you need to see it through their eyes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the other half of it, right? Like as you're doing this reflection, it's knowing yourself, and then it's knowing the place where you're going to be. Um, and that that work is granular, right? It's not. Too often, like particularly when you look at some of those business school versions of leadership entry, they say things like, you know, look at the reports and look at the, you know, focus surveys and things like that. And it's all this like technical data that you should be looking at. And you should totally do that. But what's more important than like figuring out where a kid lives and walking that their path to school and figuring mm-hmm. out what that's like? What do they pass along the way? What kind of experiences are they having on their way to years or their building? Take the bus home. What's that sort of thing happening? have dinner at the restaurant that the three kids recommended, right? Like where, where did they go for their birthday? Hey, hey check out these places. Mm-hmm. Um, the more that you're actually figuring out how do people live? What do they value? Um, what matters to the community here is really important. And I think when we start to listen to kid voices on that and then, to, and then think about like, who am I not hearing from, right? Every building, whether you're, you know, if you're a superintendent, there are power players who are giving you their opinion and telling you what they think. There are folks in your school community who are more involved, parents who are telling you what they think. And it's your responsibility as the leader to get those other perspectives that you might not be hearing from. So another key piece of this is like, who, whose voices I'm not hearing? Is there a community uh, within our school that you know perhaps isn't as vocal here? Am I not hearing from you know parents of special education students? Am I not hearing from this particular uh, population or demographic, my refugee students, what's the, who, who am I not getting um, voice from? And then I think that there's little tricks you can do to it too, right? Like there are people to go to, right? Have kids give you a tour. Um, one of my favorites that I fell into was talking to realtors, right? Like realtors know the area. <laughs> they know what's happening here. They know about everybody's gossip. They know the history of it and the set, like where people live and why and all of these pieces. And so one of the most powerful things I did as a leader was go on walking tours with realtors uh, to just tell me about the neighborhood and kind of what they see. So I think there's all those sorts of things to really help you know and really anchor in 
Like, what is the community's vision for for learning for for their youth? Thanks, guys. Nice. Love the practical tips there. So you, I think you and Habib just went back and forth a little bit about one of the first steps that you uh, outlined, which is like, I, I forgot how you referred to it, but it's listening, being a sponge and just instead of going uh, in, in, on day one, guns a blazing, really listening to others. So is there, can you give us a quick overview of some of the other steps that are part of like the leadership uh, plan? Yeah. And I think one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about in this work, and I think uh, Habib, you would definitely agree is you know, there's, there's frameworks and there's all these things that we have these elements, but like, even in terms of steps, like we know that you never, like it never all happens in the same time, right? You're bouncing into different spots. And as a leader, you're like, oh, I'm going to have to lean in here or lean in there. Uh, but that you really want to attend to all the elements, right? And so like the first two that I shared um, are those, are those reflective ones. Like you need to know who you are. You need to know who you are as a leader. You need to know where you stand, how you define equity. Um, what does, what does racial justice mean to you? What does like social justice mean to you? Um, and be real clear about that. And how does that align or misalign with the school? You need to know your context, your community, its history, uh, the history of the organization within the community, because those are not the same thing um, in many places, um, particularly for our schools and our you know, public, public entities or nonprofit entities. Um, and then you get into the work of learning, right? And so what you're talking about, this idea of, you know, you listen with empathy. Um, that your job is to really take the standpoint of what does it mean to experience and know this organization fully from other people's perspectives. Um, and you do that to really get to cultivating an understanding of what this organization is. And that's not work you do by yourself, right? This is work that you're really thinking about who's involved with it. Who, how are you talking to all the right sorts of people, right? Doing student interviews, doing parent interviews, doing community member interviews doing board member interviews, like really getting that sort of information. Sometimes where you want to be at your office or going to where they are, having interviews at the local McDonald's or wherever the places that the people are hanging out. Um, and you do all of that and then you bring that data together along with that technical data, right? The reports and this testing data and the academic data and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you make sense of it together. Mm -hmm. And that's a shared process, right? Like you put the structures that you can really truly understand what's going on there. Um, and you do all that to figure out what's the story. What is it? What is the story of this community, where it is, its hopes, its dreams, its aspirations, and its fears. And you do all of that to be able to say, we need to tell a new story. I mean, I have worked in a lot of places, and I think it's true of all places, that there is a narrative, there's a public narrative about places. And they are usually not the stories we would tell about ourselves. They are not the stories we would tell about the people we love and the places we love. Uh, they're stories of deficits. They're stories of complaints. I mean, I live in Chicago, right? Like the first thing people talk to me about is violence and how I must be afraid to live here, um, which, you know, I look at them like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, the governor or the, the, the wannabe governor right now is, is calling us a hellhole, right? Like this is these are the stories that get told about places, places full of people we love, people who love their lives, who love their families. Um, and so part of your responsibility is to create that new narrative, help people tell the story of this place, of this school, of this organization, of this community, as though we love it and there is no place better than this, that everything that we could possibly need is contained within it. And when you do that, then you start the step of action, right? So we've talked about all these other pieces. <laughs> and look at that, five different things before we even talk about doing something, right? Because that's the work. 
it's building, it's empowering, it's unleashing the power and potential of others to then act, to galvanize a group of people to act and collectively towards achieving that vision and then that reality of, of what their community could be. And all of that swirls in, I think, two big things. The first is throughout all those stages, you're building trust and you're learning how to be transparent and helping other people be transparent. This work has to be, you know, selective vulnerability. You're not just telling everybody your business and making it weird, but you are making sure that people know what's up and they know they can trust you and that they know what you say is what will happen. And the other thing that we have found in our own work and in the leaders that we talk to is when you do this work, it unearths a whole bunch of stuff. When you start getting into that collective vision, when you have these conversations um, about stories that are told about a place, those legacies of trauma that our organizations create, sometimes intentionally, sometimes inadvertently, they surface. The stories parents have about schooling, they surface. The harm done to different communities, they surface. And you have to create space for care for yourself because those are hard things to hold in, in concert with people, but you also have to create space for the community to heal, for the community to address these traumas and to care for itself. And so like, we always kind of think of that as the container around it, right? You're doing this hard work, you're doing this transformative work, but if you're not attending to care, if you're not attending to healing for both yourself and for others, it's gonna burn you out. And so for us, that's the whole ecosystem in which you're trying to enter. It's funny because the Chicago comment triggered a memory. I remember as a teenager, I traveled to England to visit some cousins I had never met. And when I told them I was from Chicago, there was this like immediate respect that I was some type of gangster or <laughs> some, some type of tough guy just because I was from Chicago. And it's it's a, it's amazing how uh, just a notion that people have will uh, impact how they treat you. So they're very yeah. spot on point. I miss the Barack Obama years because before Barack Obama, anytime I went left the country, it was Chicago, bang, bang, Al Capone. Right. right. Yeah. Then it was Barack Obama. Yeah. And now it's back to bang, bang, Al Capone. You know, one of the, the big keys as for all the fellow, uh, uh, fellow educators who are listening to this is, you know, we, we kind of talked about that, just really kind of getting a better understanding of where, you know, the community you're, you're a part, listening, getting, you know, being transparent, building that trust. And when we get into the action, like, okay, what, 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 what do you think are the next steps? Or, okay, we get, you get that data. And I know you've been working with other schools and districts uh, that I, I know. And I know, I think just, um, uh, I was following you and I, I know that you worked with, a, I think a, a state downstate, I don't know if you remember, it was Florida, I think with the Kamer set and there was a team that you went out with. So, you know, from after we get those initial and, and, and that deep dive, which sometimes is hard, but, you know, you know, just kind of. In your, in a, if you could just to, for us educators say, okay, what would be the next steps? And after we do we do that the groundwork, we, we you know we, we get we get down and dirty. Um, wh where should where should they go? What what should be the next steps for them? Yeah, and so if I, I would say that um, the the next step really is to commit to action driven by what the communities uncover, and like that's going to be local, that's going to be proximate, kind of the the very detailed granular what's. Mm -hmm. um, are going to emerge from you actually doing this work with other people. Um, that being said, there, there are things to, to be aware of, right? It's the, um, there's probably next steps around how much you center yourself as the leader versus the, 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 the work to be done um, that, that's identified within the community. I think the other piece where people get, get stuck in these processes is the, how do you go from thinking about action to identifying what needs to be done, to getting to making the work happen. 
right? I mean, we are so good at creating action plans. We are not good at planning or executing them. I think one of the things that I'm really passionate about is, you know, we could plan all day and there's a place for planning. And where people really struggle is how do you execute? Um, because what we don't put in place is the infrastructure to keep continuous improvement happening, right? Like we stop meeting, we create the plan and then we're done. But, you know, the real work is actually keep showing up every four weeks, every six weeks um, to actually think about what is the work that's possible in the time that we have. Um, I, I think there was, I mean, and, and, and what I don't think people realize is like leaders are craving this. Um, I was doing empathy interviews with all the leaders in, in the district in the Northeast. And to a T, like the things that people were saying to me was, that this is all well and good, but what I really want is someone to check in on me over the course of the year and make sure I'm doing the things that I promised I was doing. It's hard to do them without accountability. I want my assistant superintendent to come in and ask me about my plan. It's never happened. I make one every year, it never happens. Um, so that idea that like, we need to actually keep the structures going you need to commit to that space and realize people want feedback. They don't want you to be a jerk to them, but mm -hmm. they want feedback given with care and candor. Um, and I think the other piece of that is we like to make plans that we can't be accountable to because it's scary, right? So when we think about what's that stage of work, once you've learned all of this, it's how can you actually hold yourself accountable? And that comes back to trust and transparency, right? For you to actually say, you know, I, I'm going to get into classrooms more this year. I'm a principal, not been as good at it. Like it's haven't been there as much as I need to. Um, that is not something people can hold you accountable for. How often are you going to get in? What are you going to do after you do it? What's the bar that you're setting for yourself? What's the change you expect to see? And so that ability to get granular about what we mean, or if you even look and say, okay, I'm going to get in five times between now and in three weeks because I see that there's these three field trips, I've got to be off site for the staff meeting, but really actually thinking about the time that you have to set ambitious but realistic goals. We don't, we don't hold ourselves to that level of detail with resources. And so when I think about like, what does it mean to get to action? It means to be clear about the time that you have to invest in this and being realistic about all the other things that are on a leader's plate, all the predictable surprises, to be clear about what your goals are and how you're gonna measure it and, and make that public. Um, the most effective entry plans I've seen have been things like, you know, there are superintendents who've said, I'm going to get to all 80 schools within the district and visit them within this first 100 days. That's, that's a pretty ambitious goal. As somebody who knows they're going to be pulled in all different ways, what did they do? In that particular case, they made the goal, but also when they finished their report, they had a list of all the commitments and promises they made to community, where they hit it, where they were short, where they got close, where they got off base, and then what they learned from it how they were gonna address. So we're showing people both what it's okay to be a learner and it's okay to make commitments, it's okay to make our goals and it's okay to miss our goals if we learn from it and change our practice moving forward. So for me, that's the work once you've kind of done these initial phases and the secret is those initial phases also don't stop happening. Like we call it entry, but you still should be learning from your community. You still need to be doing this sort of work, just probably not with the same intensity. So you mentioned candor and, you know, you refer to radical candor. So my question was, so new leader comes in, you know, they're listening, they're absorbing, they're having individual conversations, uh, interviewing stakeholders. Now they get all this data. They understand the culture of the environment that they're in. How do you have that direct and open conversation yet still remain respectful and avoid, not avoid confrontation, but avoid maybe, uh, you know, just avoid any type of uneasiness that can, happen when you're presenting maybe data that's not the most positive? 
Yeah. Um, one of the things that we talk about in the book and one of the things that we've seen from, from leaders who are you know, better at this is, uh, you know, there's a temptation to hide the data. There's a temptation to sugarcoat it. There's a temptation to avoid the racial implications of it, right? Like if, if you go walk into most of our school systems in this country, there are equity issues that will be prevalent in your data. There are haves and have nots that need to be named clearly and that need to be stated. Um, and that is uncomfortable. Um, what leaders tend to do that's effective in that moment is they're able to point to the hope. This is not an indictment of people. This is not an indictment of hard work that people have done to get to this point. What it is, is a, is a statement that there is work yet to do because there is more that we want for our kids. And that effective leaders are able to anchor in the raw truth and to not sugarcoat it, but to use it as a you know, flashlight or a, a pointing direction towards a more hopeful future. They're able to bridge that, that, that with where, where we can be. But again, not where they think this place should be, but where the community, where the students, where the teachers um, really see as, as, as the place where they can be and show that it's possible. Uh, show that, you know, just because you have seen years upon years of failure and lack of investment in particular things, um, that that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. So I just, I don't want to lose. So, and then again, in terms of sustainability, um, and you referred to this earlier. So somebody comes in, they follow the blueprint, right? In terms of this uh, new leadership plan. Have you ever witnessed where somebody does everything they're supposed to uh, as a new leader, but then they fall uh, on their successes. And then maybe in year two or three, they forgot about that, like that grit and hard work that got them to this, to this uh, highly acclaimed spot or place. Yeah. I think there are stories that are told that way. Okay. I think if we unpacked them, what we would learn is that person probably missed the most important lesson, which is if they are keeping it all about them, that's what happened, right? Like it's a lot harder. If the wheel's able to fall apart, it's because you don't have enough people on it because you haven't actually, like it's still your, your dream. It's your vision. You're the one, it's your energy. It's your blood, sweat and tears pushing it. Maybe a couple of other people. But when you've actually done the work and it's actually owned and actually identified and actually rooted in real things that the folks there um, see as the work, it will outlast you. Even if you do get tired, <laughs> like it will outlast you. Um, and so I think that would be the thing that I'd be thinking about that for that person. It's like, have, have you really given up enough? Have you trusted this community um, that they want this solved and that they, and that they're, they're moving it in the right direction. It was kind of in that same thing, like what are the challenges that you see now that you've had work with schools and processes? What, what are the obstacles? Like when you go through this process, do you see any obstacles that our leaders should think about or a stakeholder who's a part of this or uh, that you see that causes I don't want to say derailment, but a little kind of like off the track and then coming back in. So I just thought, you know, for, for the people who are going to hopefully read your book and we want to kind of give a little, you know, at the end, we're going to give a little, you know, a little more details about where you could get this information. Mm -hmm. uh, but what would be something that for you went to, for us to think about, like, hey, as we go through these processes and from your experience of working with so many school districts and just different educators, some of the challenges that you might uh, see as they go through this? 
Yeah, and I think this is one where like we have to start by naming race um, and how it shows up differently, right? So um, when I talk to other white male educators, uh, too often white male mentality can get in the way, right? Where it's, you know, you have folks that the savior complex comes out, the I can fix this, or, you know, my way of thinking is the right way. All those sorts of biases things that surface in, in certain ways become a real obstacle for folks, right? Especially if you are um, a white leader working in a predominantly non-white community, um, navigating that space, um, really being able to listen with empathy, building trust, um, when people have you know, right reasons not to trust somebody that they don't know um, and have a history of experiences in that way. Um, at the same time, like we talked to you know, uh, particularly female uh, leaders of color who some of their barriers are more around like having to do work that would not be expected of anybody else, um, where other leaders in the region are able to say like, hey, this is the plan. Um, these women with doctorates, with advanced degrees, with multiple experience doing this are told by their boards, they've got to bring uh, research. They need to explain why it's happening, right? They need to, you know, go through these other hoops. They're expected to do this piece. Um, and that additional scrutiny makes it a lot harder to maintain the role um, because it's that constant, you know, barrier, critique, frustration, inability to uh, get what you want to have happen um, because of other places like that. So I think those are two big ones. I think another one is um, I've not yet met a leader that doesn't struggle with the trust and transparency and getting it right. I think the default for most leaders is to not trust others enough to trust their own judgment more in those beginning situations um, and not take the risk to say, you know what, it's okay if I trust them to do it. If it blows up, here's how I'll fix it. Or here's, here will be my criteria for stepping in, uh, the evidence that I need to see. Um, and then not being transparent enough, not being uh, vulnerable about where you're learning, where you're making mistakes, what are the things that you're worried about with the work. Um, and then, of course, there's a subset of people who overshare and are telling you too much about, about what's going on. And people worry about their competence and their uh, you know, emotional health. So I think living in that world of trust and transparency in the sweet spot matters. Mm -hmm. um, being comfortable giving feedback in a way that cares and, and, and really honors that you love the person. Um, and then really wrestling with the way that your race, your gender, your other identities uh, show up in your leadership and in, in that community. Completely random question. I was just, you know, when we're talking about uh, equity, educational access, what, like, what have you noticed in the last few years or since COVID in terms of the use of technology? Has that leveled the, the, the playing field? Has that become more of a hindrance? I got... I took actually coursework in uh, technology back before there was even this technology, right? And like one of the most important lessons that I remember was just remember a pencil is technology mm. uh, and being very intentional about like all these tools that we use outside of us and the student and the content we want them to learn are technology that enable that. Um, I think one of the things that I pay most attention to when it comes to technology, particularly in this, this, this COVID experience is um, the values underpinning the platform, the design, the code have deep ramifications for the learning. And I think that many of the solutions that we seek are selecting are ones that reinforce a 
authority as expert, a student as recipient to be tested version of learning. Like when you think about IXL, when you think about Khan Academy, right? Like this, this thing is that learning is a one-to-one relationship from somebody who is more knowledgeable to somebody who is less knowledgeable. Um, and I think one of the things that I find very true when I coach networks of principals and I find true for kids, and I don't care how young they are, is the real learning really comes through between peers. It comes through amongst folks wrestling with a problem with different skills, different experiences, and a clear task. Oftentimes with expert guidance, oftentimes with questioning and prompting, um, but it's through the wrestling with others around an important and meaningful and worthy task that learning happens. And I think that it is very limited examples of technological, if we think like, you know, circuits and gadgets and electrons that have really found ways to do authentic peer learning, peer feedback, wrestling with authentic tasks that apply to the real world. I mean, one of the things, if you go by Peterson, you will see benches and gardens and fences all built by students because one of the things that that team did at the beginning of every year was have a lesson where they worked together as a seventh grade and planned a part of the garden or planned an outdoor learning space and had to learn all these skills and work together. And one built the community for the year, but it was also this wrestling with problem solving, wrestling with figuring out how do you actually build a bench? <laughs> how do you, what are those math skills that you need in place there? What are the science skills when you do it on a rainy day? All of those sorts of things. And I think those can happen on technology. The potential is there. Um, but we tend to pick the wrong tools and then we tend to use the tools that we do have in the wrong way. So I used to teach ESL and, you know, it just took me back. A lot of what you were saying took me back to importance of like peer feedback and letting the students figure it out uh, together and task-based situations and whatnot. So thank you for uh, bringing me back to those uh, early memories of teaching ESL. And then uh, go ahead, Abby. Well, I think for others who are listening to this, and I think he brought up a big point, like, like if you look at Adam's history, a lot of the schools, district, you, you work with different minority uh, groups. Uh, if you just want to kind of give a little background for individuals, just so they have a better idea of, of your, you know, your perspective and writing this is not just one specific minority group, but there's been a vast different ethnic groups. So maybe just want to give a little background for some people who are maybe interested in maybe looking at your book. Yeah. So, and then, and then I will also share like with my co-authors that even expands exponentially. Right. So, I mean, I've, I've worked in Southwest Philadelphia with middle schoolers in a predominantly almost entirely uh, black school uh, student population. I have worked in a almost 50, 50 split K five school Um between uh, black students and Latinx students. I have worked in predominantly white schools. I have worked in Peterson, which uh, anyone who wants to go to the greatest school in the world, as uh, Bib and I can, can attest, um, which is a school with a thousand kids, pre-K through eight, uh, what were we, 35 languages, 70 plus nationalities, um, pretty much if, if you named it, we had a substantial population, right? Like when I always, you know, that, that's one of my pet peeves, right? People talk about diversity and they mean like white and black or maybe white, black and Latinx. And it's like, no, diversity is everybody, right? Like it is um, 
these sort of places we used to call Peterson the place where the world came to learn, um, because that's what we were. Those were the those were things that we were trying to figure out. Um, what does it mean to really live in this this pluralist school? Really meeting the needs of parents with very different expectations on, on what school should be, um, and different community values and all that kind of kind of pieces about what they wanted from school and what school should look like and what learning looked like and like that's where really good interesting things can happen. Um, I've also worked in, you know, the New York City Department of Education with 1.1 million students uh, in Chicago, um, and you know, I have, I have some experience in, in, in some rural communities as well, having worked with schools in Eastern Oregon and uh, uh, what North, North or Southwest Kentucky, among others. So, um, I find that there's, you know, more in common in these places um, around what you know hopes and dreams are for our kids, what we want our school experiences to be like. Um, that, that, that I've seen difference in my own, uh, and that it's really those those nuances of culture, it's those nuances of a particular space and a particular group of people coming together that really makes for for the magic of community. So that, that's, I guess, the, the blurred version of uh, <laughs> my experience. And where can we find the book? If, for, for those who are interested in the book, where can we purchase it? Yeah, so the book is available. It is already available for pre-order on Amazon. It is uh, also available from the Harvard Education uh, Press website. And it's in paper now, as of this week. So anybody who, I'm pretty sure they say it October 25th, but I think if you pre-order, you might get it earlier. Yes. Uh, so feel free. And if you have questions, I know myself and my co-authors are excited to talk to people. We think this is a conversation that hasn't been happening in schools and nonprofits. Um, and it's and it's past time for us to really be thinking about how do we enter well so people stay and they stay and we want them to stay uh, because our schools are better places for kids. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And then and do you have a Twitter or anything else that people want to follow you or Facebook or anything? Just, anything? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Edu. Educate so that it's E D U C eight uh, Adam A D A M and uh, yeah, that's the only social media I do <laughs> or LinkedIn. You are always welcome to find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect and chat there. And again, if you have questions, if you use the book, if you're using some of the tools or the entry plan documents that are in it, uh, happy to have conversations and, and make sure that they're they're helping you well. Dr. Adam, thank you for your time. Thank you for imparting and sharing your knowledge with us, and we look forward to. Uh, seeing the success of the book and having you back on again. Wonderful. Thank you, Amran. Thank you for having me, Habib. Hey, thank you. It was a really good time just kind of hearing you and getting this information.